Hello, and welcome back to a reading of Jane Eyre, featuring your friends from the podcast Womance, Morgan and Isabel. Hello. How's it going, Isabel? Not bad. Not bad at all. What happened last week in Chapter 24? Such a good question that you asked. (laughs) That's so important that I answer. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, a couple of things. They start courting. Rochester says that he's going to marry her and that they spend this month together in sort of courtship bliss. It's very tame and sedate. He sings to her. She feels good. And then she, of course, teases him and tries to verbally play with him. But she's just having a great time with her idol. She was told by the housekeeper, like, don't sleep with him and keep him at arm's distance so it's easier to not have sex with him. And she's taken that all very much to heart. And Rochester thinks she's just playing hard to get. And loves it slash hates it. Yeah, they continue being in two totally different relationships with one another. (laughs) It's great. Tantalizing nonetheless. All right. So as your odd chapter reader, I'm excited to read to you chapter 25. The month of courtship had wasted. Its very last hours were being numbered. There was no putting off the day that advanced, the bridal day. And all preparations for its arrival were complete. I, at least, had nothing more to do. There were my trunks packed, locked, corded, ranged in a row along the wall of my little chamber. Tomorrow, at this time, they will be far on their road to London, and so should I, parenthetical DV, which means Dio Valente in Latin, or God willing, Mm. or rather not I, but one Jane Rochester, a person whom as yet I knew not. The cards of address alone remained to nail on. They lay four little squares on the drawer. Mr. Rochester had himself written the direction, Mr. Rochester, beep, Hotel, London, on each. I could not persuade myself to affix them or to have them affixed. Mrs. Rochester, she did not exist. She would not be born till tomorrow, sometime after 8 o'clock a.m., and I would wait to be assured she had come into the world alive before I assigned to her all that property. It was enough that, in yonder closet, opposite my dressing table, garments said to be hers had already displaced my black stuff low-wood frock and straw bonnet. For not to me appertained that suit of wedding raiment, the pearl-colored robe, the vapory veil, pendant from usurped portmanteau, which means clothes rack. That's interesting. Portmanteau means clothes rack? Mm-hmm. That it meant when you combine two words into one word. So that's when a word is a portmanteau, which is the combination of the two things, but the actual... Portmanteau. Yeah, is, a... is like something that you carry. It's a trunk with a clothes rack in it. That's so interesting. I love reading these oldie books. <laughs> I shut the closet to conceal the strange wraith-like apparel it contained, which, at this evening hour, nine o'clock, gave out certainly a most ghostly shimmer through the shadow of my apartment. I will leave you by yourself, white dream, I said. I am feverish. I hear the wind blowing. I will go out of doors and feel it. A very Jane perspective on a wedding dress. Ghostly, wraith-like, but still shimmering, right? They're still like that admiration. Also the idea that Mrs. Rochester hasn't yet been born and she will wait to know if she is born alive before telling people. Like, what a way to hedge your bets and describe being married. I know, it seems like uh, she's got some reservations, dare I say. (laughs) Also, how upset would you be if you had to show up to a wedding at 8am? 
Honestly, I wouldn't go. <laughs> if you love me, you would never do that to me. Like, anybody who loves me is not going to make a wedding happen at 8 a.m. I might have to arrive at a place to get ready for a wedding uh-huh. at 8 a.m. But, like, if the ceremony itself, because that means I have to be up at 6. No. It was not only the hurry of preparation that made me feverish, not only the anticipation of the great change. The new life was to commence tomorrow. Both these circumstances had their share, doubtless, in producing that restless, excited mood which hurried me forth at this late hour into the darkening grounds. But a third cause influenced my mind more than they. I had at heart a strange and anxious thought. Something had happened which I could not comprehend. No one knew of or had seen the event but myself. It had taken place the preceding night. Mr. Rochester, that night, was absent from home. Nor was he yet returned. Business had called him to a small estate, or two or three farms he possessed, 30 miles off. Business, it was requisite, he should settle in person. Previous to his meditated departure from England, I waited now his return, eager to disburden my mind, and to seek of him the solution of the enigma that perplexed me. Stay till he comes, reader, and when I disclose my secret to him, you shall share the confidence. I sought the orchard, driven to its shelter by the wind, which all day had blown strong and full from the south, without, however, bringing a speck of rain, a dry southern wind. Instead of subsiding at night, it blew steadfastly one way, never writhing round and scarcely tossing back their boughs once in an hour, so continuous was the strain bending their branchy heads northward. The clouds drifted from pole to pole, fast following, mass on mass. No glimpse of blue sky had been visible that July day. It was not without a certain wild pleasure that I ran before the wind, delivering my trouble of mind to the measureless air torrent thundering through space. Descending the laurel walk, I faced the wreck of the chestnut tree. It stood up, black and riven. The trunk, split down the center, gaped ghastly. The cloven halves were not broken from each other for the firm base and strong roots kept them unsundered below. Though the community of vitality was destroyed, the sap could flow no more. Their great boughs on each side were dead, and next winter's tempests would sure to fell one or both to earth. As yet, however, they might be said to form one tree, a ruin, but an entire ruin. You did right to hold fast to each other, I said as if monster splinters were living things and could hear me. I think, scathed as you look, and charred and scorched, there must be a little sense of life in you yet, rising out of that adhesion at the faithful, honest roots. You will never have green leaves more, never more see birds making nests and singing idols in your boughs. The time of pleasure and love is over with you, but you are not desolate. Each of you has a comrade to sympathize with him in his decay. As I looked up at them, the moon appeared momentarily in that part of the sky which filled their fissure. Her disk was blood red and half overcast. She seemed to throw on me one bewildered, dreary glance, and buried herself again instantly in the deep drift of cloud. The wind fell for a second round Thornfield, but far away over wood and water poured a wild, melancholy wail. It was sad to listen to, and I ran off again. Here and there I stayed through the orchard gathering the apples with which the grass round the tree roots was thickly unripe. I carried them into the house and put them away in the storeroom. Then I repaired to the library to ascertain whether the fire was lighted. For, though summer, I knew on such a gloomy evening Mr. Rochester would like to see a cheerful hearth when he came in. 
Yes, the fire had been kindled some time and burned well. I placed his armchair by the chimney corner. I wheeled the table near it. I let down the curtain and had the candles brought in ready for lighting. More restless than ever, when I had completed these arrangements, I could not sit still, nor even remain in the house. A little timepiece in the room and the old clock in the hall simultaneously struck ten. How late it grows, I said. I will run down to the gates. It is moonlit at intervals. I can see a good way of the road. He may be coming now, and to meet him will save some of the minutes' suspense. The wind roared high in the great trees which embowered the gates, but the road, as far as I could see, to the right and to the left, was all still and solitary, save for the shadows of clouds crossing it at intervals as the moon looked out. But it was a long, pale line, unvaried by one moving speck. A puerile tear dimmed my eye while I looked, a tear of disappointment and impatience. Ashamed of it, I wiped it away. I lingered. The moon shut herself wholly within her chamber and drew close her curtain of dense cloud. The night grew dark. Rain came driving fast on the gale. I wish he would come, I wish he would come, I exclaimed, seized with hypochondriac foreboding. I had expected his arrival before tea. Now it was dark. What could keep him? Had an accident happened? The event of last night again recurred to me. I interpreted it as a warning of disaster. I feared my hopes were too bright to be realized, and I had enjoyed so much bliss lately that I imagined my fortune had passed its meridian and must now decline. Well, I can't not return to the house, I thought. I cannot sit by the fireside while he is abroad in inclement weather. Better tire my limbs than strain my heart. I will go forward and meet him. I set out. I walked fast, but not far. Ere I had measured a quarter of a mile, I heard the tramp of hooves. A horseman came on, full gallop. A dog ran by his side. Away with evil presentiment. It was he. Here he was, mounted on Mesrur, followed by Pilate. He saw me, for the moon had opened a blue field in the sky and rode in it a watery bright. He took his hat off and waved it round his head. I now ran to meet him. There, he exclaimed as he stretched out his hand and bent from the saddle. You can't do without me. That is evident. Step on my boot toe. Give me both hands. Mount. I obeyed. Joy made me agile. I sprung up before him. A hearty kissing I got for welcome, and some boastful triumph which I swallowed as well as I could. He checked himself in his exultation to demand, But is there anything the matter, Janet? Or did you come to meet me at such an hour? Is there anything wrong? No, but I thought you would never come. I could not bear to wait in the house for you, especially with this rain and wind. Rain and wind, indeed. Yes, you are dripping like a mermaid. Can't stop. <laughs> Won't stop. Pull my cloak round you, but I think you are feverish, Jane. Both your cheek and hand are burning hot. I ask again, is there anything the matter? Nothing now. I am neither afraid nor unhappy. Then you have been both. Rather. But I'll tell you all about it by and by, sir. I dare say you will only laugh at me for my pains. I'll laugh at you heartily when tomorrow is past. Till then, I dare not. My prize is not certain. This is you who have been as slippery as an eel this last month and as thorny as a briar rose. I could not lay a finger anywhere, but I was pricked. And now I seem to have gathered up a stray lamb in my arms. You wandered out of the fold to seek your shepherd, did you, Jane? Jesus. Literally, Jesus. By the way, he's talking about himself. Yeah. He has framed himself as Jesus Christ. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. He's so arrogant. Why do I love it? And like, all he wants is for her to be like, yes, you are Jesus. Yeah, you are literally my Messiah. He's like, say it say it yeah like every time rochester brings something up it's to be reassured i think 
of the facts. Like, I truly don't think he believes it himself, but this is like, you know, not on my first reading. And I think on my first reading, he probably came across as quite confident, which is why Jane Eyre is a book people should revisit. Agreed, hard agree. It's a book you can definitely revisit. Okay, anyways, I wanted you, but don't boast. Here we are at Thornfield, now let me get down. He landed me on the pavement. As John took his horse and he followed me into the hall, he told me to make haste and put something dry on, and then to return to him in the library. And he stopped me, as I made for the staircase, to extort a promise that I would not be long. Nor was I long. In five minutes I rejoined him. I found him at supper. Take a seat and bear me company, Jane. Please God, it is the last meal, but one you will eat at Thornfield Hall for a long time. God, it is the last meal, but one you will eat at Thornfield Hall for a long time. Meaning, you'll eat another meal here at Thornfield, and then you won't eat at Thornfield for a long time. So enjoy your second to last meal. Sorry, I had, that was mostly for my own benefit. Yeah, the math of this syntax here is really weird because it's like she's going to get the breakfast tomorrow and then they're going to go on their fucking honeymoon. It's weird. It is very much like when you're like going through eighth grade graduation mm-hmm. and you don't actually know what it means to have sentiment. And so you're like, this is my second to last school lunch as an eighth grader. Yeah. Like it has that same vibe. I sat down near him, but told him I could not eat. Is it because you have the prospect of a journey before you, Jane? Is it the thoughts of going to London that takes away your appetite? I cannot see my prospects clearly tonight, sir. I hardly know what thoughts I have in my head. Everything in life seems unreal. Except me. I am substantial enough. Touch me. (laughs) Right? Touch me. Touch me, touch me! I know, we've got like a storm with Janet. I know. Caught in the storm. I was demanding to be touched. That's a Rocky Horror Picture Show here. Okay. You, sir, are the most phantom-like of all. You are a mere dream. He held out his hand, laughing. Is that a dream, said he, placing it close to my eyes. He had a rounded, muscular, and vigorous hand, as well as a long, strong arm. Yes, though I touch it, it is a dream, said I, as I put it down before my face. Sir, have you finished supper? Yes, Jane. I rung the bell and ordered away the tray. When we were again alone, I stirred the fire and then took a seat at my master's knee. It is near midnight, I said. Yes, but remember, Jane, you promised to wake with me the night before my wedding. I did, and I will keep my promise for an hour or two at least. I have no wish to go to bed. Are all your arrangements complete? All, sir. And on my part, likewise, he returned. I have settled everything, and we shall leave Thornfield tomorrow within half an hour after our return from church. Very well, sir. With what an extraordinary smile you uttered that word, very well, Jane. What a bright spot of color you have on each cheek, and how strangely your eyes glitter. Are you well? I believe I am. Believe? What is the matter? Tell me what you feel. I could not, sir. No words could tell you what I feel. I wish this present hour would never end. Who knows with what fate the next may come charged. This is hypochondria, Jane. You have been overexcited and overfatigued. Do you, sir, feel calm and happy? Calm? No, but happy to the heart's core. I looked up at him and read the signs of bliss on his face. It was ardent and flushed. Give me your confidence, Jane, he said. Relieve your mind of any weight that oppresses it by imparting it to me. What do you fear? That I shall not prove a good husband? It is the idea farthest from my thoughts. Are you apprehensive of the new sphere you are about to enter, of the life into which you are passing? No. 
You puzzle me, Jane. Your look and tone of sorrowful audacity perplex and pain me. I want an explanation. Then, sir, listen. You were from home last night? I was, I know that. And you hinted a while ago at something which had happened in my absence. Nothing, probably, of consequence, but, in short, it has disturbed you. Let me hear it. Mrs. Fairfax has said something, perhaps. Or have you overheard the servants talk? Your sensitive self-respect has been wounded. No, sir. It struck twelve. I waited till the timepiece had concluded its silver chime, and the clock its hoarse, vibrating stroke. And then I proceeded. All day yesterday, I was very busy, and very happy in my ceaseless bustle, for I am not, as you seem to think, troubled by any haunting fears about the new sphere, etc. I think it a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you, because I love you. No, sir, don't caress me now. Let me talk undisturbed. Yesterday, I trusted well in Providence, and believed that events were working together for your good and mine. It was a fine day, if you recollect. The calmness of the air and sky forbade apprehensions. Respecting your safety or comfort on your journey, I walked a little while on the pavement after tea, thinking of you. And I beheld you in imagination so near me, I scarcely missed your actual presence. I thought of the life that lay before me, your life, sir, an existence more expansive and stirring than my own, as much more so as the depths of the sea to which the brook runs are than the shallows of its own straight channel. I wondered why moralists call this world a dreary wilderness. For me, it blossomed like a rose. Just at sunset, the air turned cold, the sky cloudy, I went in. Sophie called me upstairs to look at my wedding dress, which they had just brought, and under it in the box I found your present, the veil which, in your princely extravagance, you sent from London, resolved, I suppose, since I could not have jewels, to cheat me into accepting something as costly. I smiled as I unfolded it, and devised how I would tease you about your aristocratic tastes, in your efforts to mask your plebeian bride in the attributes of Pyrrhus, I thought how I would carry down to you the square of unembroidered blonde I had myself prepared as a covering for my low-born head, and asked if that was not good enough for a woman who could bring her husband neither fortune, beauty, nor connections. I saw plainly how you would look, and heard your impetuous republican answers, and your haughty disavowal of any necessity on your part to augment your wealth, or elevate your standing, by marrying either a purse or a coronet. How well you read me, you witch, interposed Mr. Rochester. But what did you find in the veil besides its embroidery? Did you find poison, or a dagger, that you look so mournful now? No, no, sir. Besides the delicacy and richness of the fabric, I said nothing save Fairfax Rochester's pride. And that did not scare me, because I am used to the sight of the demon. But, sir, as it grew dark, the wind rose. It blew yesterday evening. Not as it blows now, wild and high, but with a sullen, moaning sound. Far more eerie. I wished you were at home. I came into this room, and the sight of the empty chair and fireless hearth chilled me. For some time after I went to bed, I could not sleep. A sense of anxious excitement distressed me. The gale, still rising, seemed to my ear to muffle a mournful undersound. Whether in the house or abroad, I could not at first tell, but it recurred, doubtful yet doleful, at every lull. At last I made out it must be some dog howling at a distance. I was glad when it ceased. On sleeping, I continued in dreams the idea of a dark and gusty night. I continued also the wish to be with you, and experienced a strange, regretful consciousness of some 
barrier dividing us. During all my first sleep, I was following the windings of an unknown road. Total obscurity environed me. Rain pelted me. I was burdened with the charge of a little child, a very small creature, too young and feeble to walk, which shivered in my cold arms and wailed piteously in my ear. I thought, sir, that you were on the road a long way before me, and I strained every nerve to overtake you, and made effort on effort to utter your name and entreat you to stop. But my movements were unfettered, and my voice still died inarticulate, while you, I felt, withdrew further and further every moment. And these dreams weigh on your spirits now, Jane, when I am close to you, little nervous subject. Forget visionary woe and think only of real happiness. You say you love me, Janet. Yes, I will not forget that, and you cannot deny it. Those words did not die inarticulate on your lips. I heard them clear and soft, a thought too solemn, perhaps, but sweet as music. I think it is a glorious thing to have the hope of living with you, Edward, because I love you. Do you love me, Jane? Repeat it. It's so interesting that he misquoted her and added in his first name. To make it more familiar. Yeah, his fantasy continues. I do, sir. I do. With my whole heart. She replies with sir. An unbreachable gap! She knows her place until tomorrow. Even then, she'll probably call him sir. Well, he said, after some minutes' silence. It is strange, but that sentence has penetrated my breast painfully. Why? I think because you said it with such an earnest, religious energy, and because your upward gaze at me now is the very sublime of faith, truth, and devotion. It is too much as if some spirit were near me. Look wicked, Jane, as you know well how to look. Coin one of your wild, sly, provoking smiles. Tell me you hate me, tease me, vex me, do anything but move me. I'd rather be incensed than saddened. I will tease you and vex you to your heart's content when I have finished my tale, but hear me to the end. I thought, Jane, you had told me all. I thought I had found the source of your melancholy in a dream. I shook my head. What? Is there more? But I will not believe it to be anything important. I warn you of incredulity beforehand. Go on. The disquietude in his air. The somewhat apprehensive impatience of his manner surprised me, but I proceeded. I dreamed another dream, sir, that Thornfield Hall was a dreary ruin, the retreat of bats and owls. I thought that of all the stately front, nothing remained but a shell-like wall, very high and very fragile-looking. I wandered on a moonlight night through the grass-grown enclosure within. Here I stumbled over a marble hearth and there over a fallen fragment of cornice. Wrapped in a shawl, I still carried the unknown little child. I might not lay it down anywhere, however tired were my arms, however much its weight impeded my progress. I must retain it. I heard the gallop of a horse at a distance on the road. I was sure it was you, and you were departing for many years and for a distant country. I climbed the thin wall with frantic, perilous haste, eager to catch one glimpse of you from the top. The stones rolled from under my feet, ivy branches I grasped gave way. The child clung around my neck in terror and almost strangled me. At last I gained the summit. I saw you like a speck on a white track lessening every moment. The blast blew so strong I could not stand. I sat down on the narrow ledge. I hushed the scared infant in my lap. You turned an angle of the road and I bent forward to take my knee. I lost my balance, fell, and woke. Now, Jane, that is all. All the preface, sir. The tale is yet to come. It's a long-ass dream, Jane. I mean, this preface better be worth something. Yeah, dude. People will make any excuse to tell you about their dreams. I'm with Rochester on this one. On waking, a gleam dazzled my eyes. I thought, oh, it is daylight. But I was mistaken. It was only candlelight. 
Sophie, I supposed, had come in. There was a light on the dressing table and the door of the closet where, before going to bed, I had hung my wedding dress and veil stood open. I heard a rustling there. I asked, Sophie, what are you doing? No one answered, but a form emerged from the closet. It took the light, held it aloft, and surveyed the garments pendant from the portmanteau. Sophie, Sophie, I again cried, and still it was silent. I had risen up in bed. I bent forward. First surprise, then bewilderment came over me, and then my blood crept cold through my veins. Mr. Rochester, this was not Sophie. It was not Leah. It was not Mrs. Fairfax. It was not... No, I was sure of it, and am still. It was not even that strange woman, Grace Poole. It must have been one of them, interrupted my master. No, sir. I solemnly assure you to the contrary. The shape standing before me had never crossed crossed my eyes within the precincts of Thornfield Hall before. The height, the contour were new to me. Describe it, Jane. It seems, sir, a woman, tall and large, with thick and dark hair hanging long down her back. I knew not what dress she had on. It was white and straight, but whether gown, sheet, or shroud, I cannot tell. Did you see her face? Not at first, but presently she took my veil from its place, she held it up, gazed at it long, and then she threw it over her own head and turned to the mirror. At that moment I saw the reflection of the visage and features quite distinctly in the dark oblong glass. And how were they? Fearful and ghastly to me. Oh sir, I never saw a face like it. It was a discolored face. It was a savage face. I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes and the fearful blackened inflammation of the lineaments. Ghosts are usually pale, Jane. This, sir, was purple. The lips were swelled and dark, the brow furrowed, the black eyebrows widely raised over bloodshot eyes. Shall I tell you of what it reminded me? You may. Of the foul German specter, the vampire. Ha, ah, what did it do? Sir, it removed my veil from its gaunt head, rent it in two parts, flinging both on the floor, trampled on them. Afterward, it drew aside the window curtain and looked out. Perhaps it saw Don approaching, for, taking the candle, it retreated to the door. Just at my bedside, the figure stopped. The fiery eye glared upon me. She thrust up her candle close to my face and extinguished it under my eyes. I was aware of her wild visage flamed over mine, and I lost consciousness for the second time in my life. Only the second time. I became insensible from terror. Who was with you when you revived? No one, sir. But the broad day I rose, bathed my head and face in water, drank a long draught, felt that, though enfeebled, I was not ill, and determined that to none but you would I impart this vision. Now, sir, tell me who and what that woman was? The creature of an overstimulated brain. That is certain. I must be careful of you, my treasure. Nerves like yours were not made for rough handling. Sir, depend on it. My nerves were not in fault. The thing is real. The transaction actually took place. In your previous dreams, were they real too? Is Thornfield Hall a ruin? Am I severed from you by insuperable obstacles? Am I leaving you without a tear, without a kiss, without a word? Not yet. That is the correct answer, Jane. <laughs> yeah, she's responding to this gaslighting really well. Meaningful glance. Am I about to do it? Why, the day has already commenced, which is to bind us indissolubly. It's the word soluble. Opposite. Indissoluble. Indissoluble. Indissolubly. Jeez Louise. And when we are at once united, there shall be no recurrence of those mental terrors. I guarantee that. If you ever want a humbling experience, just read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
That's what I tell my students. Mental terrors, sir. I wish I could believe them to be only such. I wish it more now than ever, since you cannot explain to me the mystery of that awful visitant. And since I cannot do it, Jane, it must have been unreal. But sir, when I said so to myself on rising in the morning, and when I looked around the room to gather courage and comfort from the cheerful aspect of each familiar object in full daylight, there, on the carpet, I saw what gave the distinct lie to my hypothesis. The veil turned from top to bottom in two halves. I felt Mr. Rochester start and shudder. He hastily flung his arms around me. Thank God, he exclaimed, that if anything malignant did come near you last night, it was only the veil that was harmed. Oh, to think what might have happened. He drew his breath short and strained. He drew his breath short and strained me so close to him I could scarcely pant. After some minutes' silence, he continued cheerily. Now, Janet, I'll explain to you all about it. It was a half-dream, half-reality. A woman did, I doubt not, enter your room. And that woman was, must have been, Grace Poole. You call her a strange being yourself. From all you know, you have reason to so call her. What did she do to me? What to Mason? In a state between sleeping and waking, you noticed her entrance and her actions, but in feverish, almost delirious as you were, you ascribed to her a goblin appearance different from her own. In long disheveled hair, the swelled black face, the exaggerated stature, were fragments of imagination, results of nightmare. The spiteful tearing of the veil was real, and it is like her. I see you would ask why I keep such a woman in my house. When we have been married a year and a day, I will tell you, but not now. Are you satisfied, Jane? Do you accept my solution of the mystery? He is always willing to throw Grace Poole under the bus, and then he constantly forgets that that's been his whole project. Yeah, the fact that Jane supplied Grace Poole so early, and that he's just been running with that lie, and like constantly forgets that that is the lie that he has committed himself to, is bonkers. Like, Rochester is actually a pretty bad liar. Yeah, he really is. But I think it's because he wants so much to be seen, and he wants to believe that Jane knows everything and still feels the way she does. They both just like lie to themselves. Like there's this second and third love story running between the lines of Jane Eyre, which is like the love story Jane is telling herself and the love story Rochester is telling himself. Do you believe him when he says that he'll tell her a year and a day after they're married? Like, do you think if everything were to go as he wants it, that he would be like, all right, had our anniversary dinner. I'm going to tell you some stuff in the morning. You think he would? I think he believes that he will. I have no prediction of how he would feel 360 six days from now but he's got some kind of procedure in his head is there something in like victorian era law that like no absolutely not there's nothing like that that would absolve him yeah he would still be committing yeah so weird that he would choose a year and a day it's clearly something he's thought about like i don't think he's making that part up on the spot i agree i think he's been thinking a lot about how he has to come clean but like won't in this moment do you know what's great about fictional characters Hmm. everything we've just said is true because the interpretation belongs to us. It's true. I reflected, and in truth it appeared to me the only possible one. (laughs) Okay, Jane. Satisfied? Yeah, okay, Jane. Satisfied I was not, but to please him I endeavored to appear so, relieved. I certainly did feel, so I answered him with a contented smile. And now, as it was long past one, I prepared to leave him. Does not Sophie sleep with Adele in the nursery, he asked as I lighted my candle. Yes, sir. And there is room enough in Adele's little bed for you. You must share it with her tonight, Jane. It is no wonder that the incident you have related should make you nervous, and I would rather you did not sleep alone. Promise me to go to the nursery. 
nursery. I shall be very glad to do so, sir. And fasten the door securely on the inside. Wake Sophie when you go upstairs under pretense of requesting her to rouse you in good time for tomorrow, for you must be dressed and have finished breakfast before eight. And now, no more somber thoughts. Chase dull care away, Janet. Don't you hear to what soft whispers the wind has fallen, and there is no more beating of the rain against the window panes. Look here, he lifted up the curtain. It is a very lovely night. It was. Half heaven was pure and stainless. The clouds now trooping before the wind, which had shifted to the west, were filing off eastward in a long, silvered columns. The moon shone peacefully. Well, said Mr. Rochester, gazing inquiringly into my eyes. How is my Janet now? The night is serene, sir, and so am I. And you will not dream of separation and sorrow tonight, but of happy love and blissful union. This prediction was but half fulfilled. I did not indeed dream of sorrow, but as little did I dream of joy, for I never slept at all. With little Adele in my arms, I watched the slumber of childhood, so tranquil, so passionless, so innocent, and waited for the coming day. All my life was awake and astir in my frame, and as soon as the sun rose, I rose too. I remember Adele clung to me as I left her. I remember I kissed her as I loosened her little hands around my neck, and I cried over her with strange emotion and quitted her because I feared my sobs would break her still sound repose. She seemed the emblem of my past life, and he I was now to array myself to meet, the dread but adored type of my unknown future day. And that concludes chapter 25 of Jane Eyre. Zing, zing. What a terrifying vision Jane had. Yeah, I don't think I've ever before made with the idea that she had this like unknown child clinging to her and almost strangling her. Like that part of it in past readings like has never interested me as much as it did in your beautiful reading of this. (laughs) And that they like really blow past it and like that's the precursor to the wraith-like creature that rents the beautiful veil in two. Yeah. The like world of dreams and visions is very obscured in Jane Eyre. Like I feel like we've read so many dream sequences. The Red Room comes to mind. And like I was thinking to myself, oh, when she goes to pick the flowers and everyone around her is dying, that's actually real, you know? Or even when she meets Mr. Rochester and he comes out of the gloaming, like that's real too. Yes. Yeah. Exit the gloaming or whenever they're together. It's like looking at everything. You know when they used to like smear Vaseline on camera lenses to create this like soft focus? It's really the impression I'm getting with like so much of this book. I'm rewatching The Sopranos and I was just thinking last night about how influential Twin Peaks must have been. Like the only real reference point for like prestige television series was Twin Peaks. And it's crazy because The Sopranos is not a show I think of as very Twin Peaksy, but upon this rewatching, it's like 25% of the show is dream sequences, which is just not something I associate with the show, but of course, you know. And like, what does a dream sequence do? Like, I know that it's this idea of like surfacing the subconscious, which is helpful in like something visual, like a movie or a TV show, but like Jane Eyre predates both of those things in existence. And whenever you're in a book, the subconscious can be surfaced in so many other ways so like what is the significance of of choosing a dream to do it is it just an exercise in writing beautifully (laughs) maybe but I think it's really interesting that 
the references that come out of the dream sequence, like I think that's also another point maybe where not that Bronte is showing off, that's not what I mean, but like the dreams themselves where she's pulling on so many other references, like biblical references and Paradise Lost and all of these other texts to sort of pull together a tableau. And that tableau is just to create atmosphere and fear and tension. The fact that this chapter starts with our courtship had wasted, like that's tough. Like we know bad things are about to happen. And then we've got like this scene where Rochester is riding away and she's like scared, hungry and tired and also has this helpless child that she has to take care of. And he looks like a white speck, like almost like a moon glow. Right. As he rides away, which is so eerie to me. That's the thing that stood out to me in this reading was the fact that he was this bright white speck. And also just the supernatural things they call each other, right? Like he calls her mermaid and witch and she calls his pride demon. Yeah. They see each other on this like totally different plane. Mm -hmm. To be fair, like that kind of indicates that they're both aware that everything that's happening is pure fantasy and cannot exist in the real world. I think for each of them for different reasons. They're both working on this project of making fantasy reality and saying like, you are these things to make fantastic things possible, perhaps. But also, like, I can't think of, like, an adaptation. And this is probably just my limited reference points, but I hope someone will let me know. I can't remember, like, an adaptation of Jane Eyre that, like, really leans on these, like, dream-like sequences. We haven't had one. Yeah, we don't even have one of, like, Lowood where, like, all the girls are sick and dying and Jane is going into the forest and picking primroses with another little girl. Like, which I think would be, like, what you would want to film. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think because we've only had really film adaptations of Jane Eyre and we've never had like a mini series, at least one that hasn't like captured the popular zeitgeist that I know of. Correct me if I'm wrong, if there is a Jane Eyre mini series that I need to get. There is with the lady from The Affair playing Jane Eyre. Oh. So quite recent. Let me look it up for you. It's available on HBO now. Oh, I guess I'll have to watch it because it seems to me like Jane Eyre is actually quite a quiet book. And so like the scenes that we're talking about with the supernatural and the atmospheric and like even the moment where she first tells Rochester that she's in love with him with like in the trees and stuff. Mm -hmm. Those are the beats that people skip over really quickly so that they can get to where we're going. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of a bummer. Oh, it's a television film. Or is it a series? I think you might be right. I think this might be... Oh, no, it is a TV series. Four episodes. 2006. Honestly, I think it needs like six episodes. Yeah. Would you do it chronologically or would you retell Jane's childhood in flashbacks? I'd tell Jane's childhood in flashbacks. You would like pin them to certain moments in the... So you would take like the main Rochester through line and think of certain moments to pin the childhood to. I do think the 2011 version did a really good job with that where we open with Jane in the fields hearing Rochester calling her name. Starts at the end, goes all the way back to the beginning. I think that's a good way to tell it. And I think I would borrow that. Like, yeah, I would definitely surface her childhood and especially Lowood as not chronological, but rather flashbacks. It would be interesting because her childhood and like the way it's described in the book is already so dreamlike that you could almost blur that even more. This ends up happening. You will have to pay us royalties here at Womance. You don't have to pay me royalties if I can be made an executive producer. That's the only reason to get made an executive producer. I will not accept royalties as long as I have to do the extremely hard work of management as an executive producer. (laughs) Don't be ridiculous. We're getting paid. Okay. (laughs) 
All right. So next week we have chapter 26. Bum, ba, da, da. Next reading, chapter 26. The Wedding Day. I can hear the bells. They're finally getting married. <laughs> All right. Until next time, uh, loosen your Janes. But never your heirs. Mwah. <laughs>